As I look back on my life, there have been a number of defining moments that have marked and shaped me as a person. Two of those events occurred within four days of one another, last week of January 1995. What's interesting is that the first was preparatory for the second. Now, this story that I'm about to tell you is really way too complicated and candidly way too long to fully explain. So I want to just briefly give you a summation of what happened. At that time, I was pastoring a rather good-sized church in the suburbs of Detroit. The church that I pastored had an attendance between five and 600 people and an auditorium that would seat about twice that number. I was the senior pastor of a staff of full-time, four full-time people, one full-time secretary, two part-timers, a full-time janitor, and a part-time maintenance man named Henry Burton, who was a retired auto worker, whose greatest concern every day was, Pastor, where are we going for lunch? And I went there with high hopes and expectations, Ignoring some fundamental signs that revealed that it was a deeply, deeply troubled church. Additionally, when I went there, I overestimated my leadership skills and my ability to work with difficult people. To give you an idea of how troubled this church was, my predecessor committed suicide. And he did so right in the church. He hung himself in the bathroom off of his office, what was then my office. And then the pastor before that had literally been run out of town. And after a few years of me being there, there was a small but very vocal group who wanted me to do the same. As hard as it is to believe, I literally had a man come into my office and say that he was praying for me to leave. And then he said words that I will never forget. He said, I prayed for the last pastor to leave, and I was surprised how God answered my prayer. Well, on Sunday morning, January 29, 1995, the chairman of our elder board was making an important announcement about the direction of the church and some decisions that had been made. We had, as a board, had had to exercise church discipline on a man, and we had removed him. And he was there that Sunday morning, and he literally stormed the platform, took over the pulpit, demanding to be heard. And then when he was done, another man stood up in the back, announced that he had a prepared petition that members could sign demanding a special congregational meeting to vote on my removal as their pastor. Well, after that disruption, right after that happened, we literally had about 100 people walk out, and we never saw them again. To say that things hit the fan would be an absolute understatement. And I will never forget that Sunday. Never. As long as I live. I realize that in church ministry, sometimes you are engaged in a spiritual battle. I had four children. The oldest at the time was in high school. Our youngest was in the sixth grade. And that 
entire episode unfolded right before their very eyes. I am pleased to say, by the grace of God, my children never, ever got turned off to the church or Christianity because of that. In part because of how Connie and I responded to abuse. And we also had some incredibly godly relatives and friends who were praying for us. Now I've gotten over that. I have recovered for the most part. Every now and then I have my moments. And part of that recovery, to be candid with you, has been Mid-Valley Bible Church. I've come here and you have loved, you have respected, you have appreciated my ministry. And that has continued to be part of the healing process. But I said there was a second event that preceded that Sunday by three days that was equally defining and impactful on me as a person. And in a real sense, what happened three days prior to that Sunday really was what got me through that Sunday and sustained me in my ministry ever since. Knowing that things were not going well in the church, I went to a friend's cabin in Michigan that was about two hours away from our home. He had a lovely cabin by a lake there. And I went away for a three-day, two-night retreat. I needed the solitude of being alone. And I wanted to just think through life and ministry. I wanted to examine my own heart. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't being stubborn. And I wanted to determine what God wanted me to do. Thankfully, I was not clinically depressed. I was just simply disillusioned with ministry and with people. And to be very candid with you, I was disappointed with God. I knew how dangerous depression could be, given what the last pastor had done. And what's more, so did my wife, Connie. So much so that when I left that Wednesday morning after I kissed Connie goodbye, she looked at me, and I'll never forget this, she kind of wagged her finger. Yes, my wife wags her finger on occasion. And she said, you better not do anything stupid. Well, I got there, and I did some long, hard, reflective thinking, and I prayed. I looked at my gifts. I can remember vividly taking out a yellow pad and writing right down the middle a line, and on one side I wrote stay, on the other side I wrote go. And I wrote down all of the reasons for staying at that church or leaving. And I was asking myself, what do people think of me? I'd been in ministry for 14 years as a successful pastor in North Dakota and Nebraska. And I also was asking myself the question, what does God think of me? And I remember again, very vividly, just like it was yesterday, I went to bed early and for the first time in a long time, I slept through the night. Prior to that, I had had fitful nights. And the next morning, I woke up and God spoke to me. Now, lest anybody here flip out, it was simply that God reminded me of something about how he feels about me. 
And it was a line from a song that I had listened to back then on cassette tape. They didn't have CDs. There was nothing such as a digital download. And it was a cassette by George Beverly Shea. That gives you an idea of who some of my favorite singers are. And I will never forget, I will never forget as long as I live, I woke up and immediately the words of that hymn were reverberating in my brain. And the words were these, nobody loves you like Jesus loves. Nobody cares like he cares. You've never had a truer friend He died that you might live again. And I thought, that's it. That's it. And friend, that event, and I am not exaggerating one iota. I haven't had to embellish this story whatsoever. And this is not an overstatement, but that single defining event changed my life and perspective forever. Because I realized that the person whose love mattered most was God's. And you know what? I didn't need the affirmation of a congregation. I didn't need the support of a board. I didn't need the encouragement from my peers. What I needed most was God. And God's opinion of me was really the only one that mattered. Now, I am able to say with complete confidence that in the 46 years that Connie and I have been married, my wife has loved me unconditionally. She has never, ever wavered in her confidence and belief in me. What's more, my children whose respect I wanted as much as anyone's in the entire world knew that I was not a phony I wasn't this guy, as some people thought, who was saying one thing in the pulpit and living something else outside. They knew me as a father who who loved his kids unconditionally, and I would do anything for their well-being, and they loved me. And they continue to love me to this day. They've even said that I can come live with them when I get older. Isn't that great? They're all wanting Connie. But, you know, they're even willing to take me in. But you know what I've learned? I've learned that the person who matters most is God. And I needed that reminder in a powerful way. And God gave it to me almost 25 years ago now on the morning of January 26, 1995. And that has made all the difference in my life. It has defined who I am as a person. It has sustained me through the good times and the bad. Now, I'm not suggesting that I didn't understand that intellectually or biblically or theologically for that matter. I understood it at that level. I just didn't understand it experientially. And once I came to understand that experientially because of that morning, it has changed my life for the better.
Now let me ask you, what does God think about you this morning? When God meditates on you in his heart, what does he feel? When God focuses on your soul, what does he see? And if God were to open his mouth this morning and express his thoughts regarding you, what would he say? And unless I'm totally deluded and conned, and I assure you I don't want to sound like a poor man's psychiatrist, I suspect some of you, perhaps more than I would like to realize, would probably say, seriously, Doug? God doesn't think much of me. God knows me, and he's repelled by me. He's turned off by my ugliness, my selfishness, my sinfulness. And friend, I want to declare to you who are here this morning on the authority of the Word of God that nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Notwithstanding what you've been told in the past, notwithstanding what you may feel in the present, when God thinks about you, what he feels and what he sees is he opens his mouth and he sings with joy inexpressible. Let me ask you, what would your life be like in your relationship and attitude towards others if you were to be fully convinced and fully persuaded that God not only loves you, but that he enjoys you. God's love for you is so infinitely intense that I want to suggest this morning that God literally, when he thinks of you and me, you know what he does? He sings! And I'm convinced that if we would come to understand that this morning, it would absolutely be a life-changing moment. Now, the reason I say that is because I want you to think about how hard you and I work at getting people to like us, right? How many times do we hide from others things that we don't want them to see so that they will like us? How much carefully crafting is there of our public image so that people don't see the real you and the real me. We're so much like the politicians of today. You know, we've got this facade out there. and Candidly, I'm getting nauseous just thinking about some of our politicians. You know what I want you to come away from this morning? I want you to come away from this message this morning with the realization that if you are here this morning as a child of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ, God loves you and he takes delight in you as his child. And you say, Doug, but you don't know me. That's true. Doug, you don't know how ugly I really am. You don't know how many times I've failed and asked for forgiveness and then 10 seconds later failed again. You don't know what a failure I am as a husband or as a wife. You don't know how I have blown it royally with my kids, how I've lost my temper, how I've broken their spirits, and that's true. But you know what? 
I don't need to know those things about you. I only need to know God. And the issue isn't who you are or what you've done. The issue is the character of God. And his determination to love you. And I want to suggest that his love for us is revealed in that immeasurable sacrifice that he made on our behalf when he went to the cross and he died for us. And you know what? Nothing else matters. It really doesn't. I was close to, I think I may have been, yes, I was in my 40s before I learned that lesson. And what I want to do this morning is I want to Look at a passage of Scripture that sets forth clearly what God thinks of you and me. And it's found in the writings of an ancient prophet named Zephaniah. Now let me just encourage you to open your Bible to Zephaniah, passage that we read from. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. I can hear your objections. You are a well-taught congregation, and I know that. You're saying, Doug, this doesn't apply to me. Doug, you see, I'm a card-carrying dispensationalist. And I know that this was written to the nation of Judah thousands of years ago. And, and Doug, there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And this is for them, and it's not for me. And that's true. This passage of Scripture that I want us to look at was written by Zephaniah, who lived in the 7th century B.C. Josiah was Judah's kings. And, and Doug, this is talking about something for them. It's for the nation of Israel, God's people. In the Old Testament, this doesn't apply to the church. All contraire, my friend. Can I remind you that according to Romans 11, you and I have been grafted into the, the nation of Israel in a real sense, spiritually speaking, and Romans 11 says that we've become partakers of the rich root of the olive tree. And so I want to suggest that these promises do apply to us. When he talks about God's love and his delight for the nation of Israel, we can, by application, apply that to us. Some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, Doug, this is all future. This is God showing his affection for his people way down in the future, after the tribulation, in the kingdom. That's true. But I would ask you this. Are we to believe that God will love us more in the future than he does now? I would argue that God's love is constant. It is steady. It is fixed. It is firm. It's rock solid. And so the love that God has for us in the future isn't greater than the love that he has for us today. Now the third objection is, well, Doug, this is all couched in corporate language. He's talking to the nation of Israel, not, not to individuals. He's talking to a body of people, and, and God's love for a corporate body is different from that of an individual. And I would ask, well, what is a corporate body if it's not individuals? <laughs> in other words, the description of God's love for us here is very much applicable to you and me. Now with that in mind, I want you to look at verse 17. 
This really is the only verse we're going to look at this morning in detail. He says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Other translations rendered, and I think it's more accurately, that he will be silent around you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Let me suggest a paraphrase of this, okay? We've got to project it on the board. This is sort of an expanded paraphrase of this verse. I want to suggest this is really what, what the prophet is saying. He's saying, the Lord your God is with you all the time. He is a powerful and mighty warrior who saves you. When he thinks of you, he exalts in festive pleasure and with great delight. At other times, he becomes quiet as he reflects on his deep affection for you. He celebrates who you are with joyful singing. Wow. Friend, the force of that is unmistakable. If there were ever a verse of Scripture that's worthy of committing to memory, it's this one. Because what you find here is something said of God's presence, God's power, and God's passion. Look at verse 17. He says, the Lord your God is with you. He's in your midst. He's always there. He'll never abandon you. He's literally right where you are today. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day, no matter where you may be, God is there. Now, I don't know how you respond to that, but I want you to notice how Zephaniah responds to it. See verse 14? He says, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Now here's one of the reasons for singing and shouting and being glad and rejoicing in your heart. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Friend, there's no way to tone down this language. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, shout. Sing. Have a party. God is with you. Cast aside all of those reserves, all of those seemingly inhibitions that we have. Throw caution to the wind. Don't worry about what other people think. Let down your guard for once and be jubilant. That word shout carries the force of a ringing cry and called for the onslaught of the enemy in battle. It was used to describe Israel going to war and shouting and singing. And what he's saying here is I want you to fill the air with a piercing cry of exultation. Shout for joy. Sing. God is with you. Now that raises a good question. It's a valid one. What good is God's presence if he's not strong enough to help me face my struggles and my enemies? Well, look what he says. He says, not only is God with you, in verse 17 he says, the mighty warrior who saves. I love that. 
You know what he's saying here? The God who is present with you is also a God of unlimited power. The picture here is that of a mighty warrior, a strong, victorious hero who's dressed for battle, who's armed and ready. He's your champion. He's your defender. So he talks about God's presence. He talks about God's power. And then he talks about God's passion. See what he says in the middle of verse 17? It says, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You know, maybe you've never thought of it in the terms of God being passionate about you. You know, we, we become so inhibited and such prude sometimes that we're, we're afraid to use the word passion out of fear that people will take it the wrong way. And you know what the prophet is saying here? He's saying God exalts, he delights, he rejoices, and he sings as the expression of his love for you. Look at those three phrases. He says, he will take great delight in you. And I love this imagery from the original Hebrew. You know what it's a picture of? It's the picture of a bridegroom who takes delight in his new bride. You know, I have conducted a lot of weddings. A lot of them. Frankly, I, I don't mind if other people do it. Weddings are a lot of work, and I'm getting too old for that. But you know, one of the things about being up front, and Ethan will certainly attest to this, is that when you are up front, you've got the best seat in the house. You really do. You get to look out and see the expression on everyone's face. And you know what? As the, as the bride comes in and everybody's attention is focused on her, you know what I've learned to do? I've learned not to look at the bride. I'll, I'll take a look at her. And sometimes you look at the dad's face as the bride's on her arm and he's thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm turning over this precious daughter of mine to this gorilla. <laughs> Believe me, I gave away a daughter. I know what it's like. But you know, you, you know who I like to look at? I like to look at the face of the bridegroom. And you know what he has oftentimes on his face? The biggest grin imaginable. Oftentimes, he's seen his bride for the first time. You know, they don't want to see each other before. And she's dressed in the most beautiful of dresses. Her hair is just perfect. Her makeup is impeccable. And she is stunning. And that bridegroom looks at his bride, and he takes delight. And there is an inexpressible joy when God thinks about you as his child. Just as a bridegroom delights in his bride. And his heart explodes in, in glad adoration. There's a divine delight beyond words as God Almighty ponders his own. 
Now, friend, if that unbridled glee and celebration and joy seems a bit too much, I want you to notice what comes next. And this is difficult to translate in the Hebrew. The NIV renders it this way. It says, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. I think a far better translation would be, he will quiet you with his love. I think that's the thought here. Some of your translations render it that way. In other words, he will become speechless. Remember the paraphrase we suggested earlier? He becomes quiet as he reflects on his deep affection for you. Think about that. One moment, God is loud, he's jubilant, he's delighting over you. And the next, he's reduced to silence as he thinks deeply of his love for you. His love is so deeply felt, so profound, so perfect, that words are inadequate and indeed unnecessary. You know what the prophet's saying here? He's saying God is speechless. Think about that. God's speechless when he, when he thinks of the love that he has for you. The all-wise, never-at-a-loss-for-words God, words God. The God who has perfect insight into every situation, who speaks correctly with divine precision, is here moved to silence. You know, people sometimes are silent for a number of reasons. Sometimes they're confused, sometimes they're bored. And sometimes people are silent as the fruit of contentment and absolute awe. And that's what he's saying here. It's almost as if God is saying, I love you so much, I can't find the words to express it. Now notice the final thing. God moves from silence to song as he rejoices over you with singing. See the end of verse 17? He takes delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you. He'll be silent, but will rejoice over you with singing. I, I do not see this as figurative language. I believe that just as God speaks, so God also sings. Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you love to know whether he's a bass, a baritone, or whatever? You know what I think? I think God sings all the parts perfectly. And I love what one man suggested in his devotional commentary. He said the reason the universe is so big, so huge, so massive, so immense, the reason the universe's expanse is so incredible is so that God can fill its void with his voice in song. He fills the black holes of the universe with the light of his love and sings the stars to sleep with lullabies about you and me. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're saying, Doug, that's all well and good. And it's certainly true of others. But you know what? It's not true of me. Because if God really took a long, hard look at me, he'd be disgusted. 
We have to take the time. I was hoping to be done, but this will just take a few minutes. Turn from, keep your finger here in Zephaniah, and I want you to turn to Psalm 103. We've got to see this. Psalm 103. He says in verse 8, Psalm 103, he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He'll always rescue. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, Psalm 103, he will not... He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. For to those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from him. Now notice what he says next. You might say, Doug, that's all well and good for somebody else. But again, you don't know me. Look at verse 14. It says, regarding our God... He knows how we are formed. He knows us. And he remembers that we are dust. I love that. God knows everything about you, friend. And knowing everything about you, you know what? He still loves us. And he does all of those wonderful things. You say, Doug, can you give me something a little bit more tangible, something I can sink my teeth into this morning? Because you know what, Doug? I've had people tell me they loved me. And you know what? They failed me, and they failed me miserably. They walked out on me. They disappointed me. What makes God's love so different? Look at verses 14 and 15. I'm in Zephaniah 3. He says, sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Friend, let that first phrase of verse 15 just sink in. He says, the Lord has taken away your punishment. What you were deserving of. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And beloved, to ensure that we never forget that concrete, tangible, visible means where God manifested his love for us, he instituted the Lord's table. And he says, I want you as my my children to come and partake of bread and partake of the cup in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask the men who will be serving as well as the worship team, if they would, to make their way forward at this time. And as they are coming forward, let's pray. Father, may the next few minutes that are ours as we, in a tangible way, a concrete way, a visible way, Remember what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. May it serve as an important reminder to us that nobody loves you like Jesus loves. Nobody cares like he cared. You've never had a truer friend. He died that you might live again. 
And Father, as you impressed that upon my heart almost 25 years ago now, I pray that you would impress it upon the hearts of those here this morning who are struggling with that truth. Whether or not God really loves them and takes great delight in them. And so I pray as we remember what Jesus did for us, it would draw us closer to you and remind us that not only that you love us, you take great joy in us. So much so that you sing over us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.